Wells open, they're away in the Golden Slipper. There's a great start. And Mick Mitt Masque on the extreme outside is about the first out. Jack Jackler on the outside, lunging, but Catlin opening just in front. Jackler trying desperately, can't reach him. Catlin opening has lasted to win the Doncaster by a hit to Jackler. This I podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Inglis. The catalogue is out for the 2021 English Classic Yearling Sale. In total, 803 yearlings have been catalogued, 620 in the main book, 183 in the highway session. The sale will run from February the 7th to February the 9th at Riverside and will be preceded by the running of the $2 million English Millennium at Randwick on the Saturday. 108 stallions will be represented at the classic sale, including 22 first season sires. 87% of the yearlings are Bob's eligible, while there are yearlings catalogued eligible for Vobus, QTIS, West Speed, and also the South Australian Breeders and Owners Incentive Scheme. Since 2018, Inglis Auctions have produced 53 Group 1 winners. In the last four years, the Classic Sale has produced the winners of a Melbourne Cup, a Golden Slipper, an Everest, a Blue Diamond, a Randwick Guineas, and a Victoria Derby. Grab your copy of a catalogue bursting with quality. The English Classic Sale 2021. Pat Webster caught many people by surprise in late November when he announced his retirement after close to six decades in the racing industry. He was initially apprenticed to Betty Lane at Geary in the Central West, later transferring to Bernie Burns at Randwick. He rode 76 winners before being forced out of the saddle by injuries sustained in a nasty fall at Rose Hill. A comeback attempt at Inverell was short-lived and he walked away from racing for six years, in which time he obtained a riggers ticket and worked on the waterfront as the operator of a giant floating crane. In 1978, the bug bit again, and young Webster successfully applied for a trainer's licence. And with the support of owners like Tony Porter, Pat made a modest start to a training career that would last for 42 years. I was one of many interested viewers glued to the Sky Racing service on the 5th of December when Pat Webster sent out his last runner, a six-year-old gelding called Kosciuszko in a benchmark 68 over 1,200 metres at Newcastle. Aided by a two-kilo claim for Brandon Griffiths, Kosciuszko led easily from a wide gate and was travelling well on the home turn. Headed by Leave Me Some inside the 200 metres, he fought back valiantly for a few strides, but eventually went under by three quarters of a length. As he'd done throughout his long career, Pat accepted defeat graciously and was left to ponder what might have been. I've had the pleasure of interviewing the man many, many times over the years, but I wanted to catch up with him just once more to offer congratulations on a great innings well played and to wish him well in his future role as a young people's mentor and a Mates for Racing ambassador for Racing New South Wales. Pat Webster is on the central coast of New South Wales as he joins us on the podcast. 
Great to have you on again, PJ. Thanks, John. Uh, looking forward. I've been looking forward to uh, your interview, and uh, it'll probably be my final one. I was thinking this morning there no other reasons to to have one. So I'm going out with an old mate in you, and uh, I was looking forward to it. Good on you, mate. Pat, those colours Kosciuszko carried the other day were very familiar to me. Orange, black Maltese cross with black hoop sleeves. They've actually been your stable colours, haven't they, for a long time? Yeah, they were my first set of colours. And how I come about them, I um, remember Christian said, how are we going to get the colours? And we stopped at a set of lights one day and, and the amber come up. I said, well, they would have got a lot of thought into the green for Gobert and the amber. <laughs> and the red, so I had the three choices. So uh, green's supposed to be pale, green's supposed to be a bit unlucky, so I went the amber. So uh, <laughs> I thought, well, if they put all that into picking the amber for the lights, I'll pick them for my colours, and mm. we've had them ever since. Only you could think of that. I've been through a couple of sets of amber <laughs> lights, amber lights, so <laughs> I, 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 yeah. I um, come up. That's how we come up with the idea. And then they, I found out later that Maxi Lee's had uh, the orange with the black Nordies cross. So we had the black hoop sleeves. I yeah. have since offered them to Chris Lee as a second set, yeah. but uh, Chris said he's doing a bit hard and he might be able to find the money to register them. So he didn't. <laughs> take, he didn't take them. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Pat, December the fifth, twenty twenty, at Newcastle was a day of great emotion for you and for a few strides at the top of the straight, it looked like it was going to have a fairy tale ending. Did you sit up in the stand or did you watch it on a TV monitor? No, I just watched it. I just went over and leaned on the, on the fence. Look, Tabby, it, it wasn't the day. Look, it was great if you could have won. The day, it, it, I have to say, it, it didn't mean it would have been something if he won, but uh, the mm. day was all about uh, Newcastle Jockey Club found out that it was my last day. Um, they actually give a table of 10 to my family, and I had my mm. daughter flew up from Melbourne. My grandson was there. My children were there, mm. and that was the most important thing. So even though Kosciuszko did run second, it was all about, it was all about the day with my family and uh, that was the most important thing to me to have them on that day. Mm. And I, Newcastle gave me a lovely little uh, 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 trophy sort of thing or whatever mm. you'd like to call it, souvenir. But that, it was just very, very emotional day, but it was very, very good at Newcastle Jockey Club to put it on. So I thank them dearly. Well, it didn't end there, Pat, because a week later, on the 12th, the Australian Turf Club gave you a similar send-off at the Randwick meeting. Yes, and I, I had uh, – my wife stood down from that so I could have uh, – uh, they give us a table of six. So we had – I had uh, five of my best friends there. If I had to go to the war, they'd be, they'd be with me. And, and most importantly, um, uh, Chrissy's brother, elder brother, Jimmy, hadn't been out of the house a lot because he'd had two tragic things happen to him in life. Um, mm. He'd lost his daughter and then he lost his wife. And uh, he actually come with me on the day, which meant so much to me. Mm. Now, Pat, you intend to continue your long-time role as a drugs and alcohol consultant and a racing mates ambassador for Racing New South Wales. It's a role you're very passionate about and you've got a lot more time now to dedicate to it. 
Well, I hope too. I hope Peter Valenti's uh, thinks the same way. He, he he started it off. He he wanted to get the drugs and alcohol side of it going. I went to take, and I'm accredited drugs and alcohol counsellor. I've done a couple of sessions with uh, um, at, at a couple of rehabs and that. Well, I still do voluntarily, but um, and then racing mates is a great thing. It's 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 getting bigger. We've been a little bit quiet with the COVID nineteen. We're just about to start to get going again. And lo and behold, look what happens um, yeah. at the week. But, you know, that's a great thing. It's it's great for people that have tragedies in racing. It's great for people that have a, have a you know, a, a setback. We're, we're there for them and we encourage people to, uh, you know, to relate to each other and talk to each other and help each other. So mm. hopefully that will just get bigger, uh, you know, over the years. So while, while I'm here to do that, I do the mentoring on at Gosford Wyoming. Newcastle with apprentices. I done yesterday at Newcastle, and uh, I'm stepping in for Scott uh, Furlow at um, um, Scone tomorrow. So I, mm. enjoy, I I do enjoy it because I get the mix with still get the mix with the people are racing, and uh, if there's help needed there, we we can give it to them. You were born in Inverell almost seventy years ago. But you later moved to Dubbo, yep, when your dad secured a job opportunity. Pat, was that around the time you lost your mum? Yeah, it was, Tappy. We we hadn't been in Dubbo very long and mum had had uh, breast cancer when we was at Inverell and, you know, it uh, was such a thing. She had, like in them days, she had to get a very slow-moving bus to a place called Glen Ennis Mm. which took hours, and then she had to get a train from Glen Ennis to Central, and then she had to get a bus from Central to um, to uh, Greenacre, where her sister lived, in, to actually go in and uh, and get a breast. It was awful what yeah. happened to them then days. They, they just took their breasts away. But So then when we went back to Dubbo, it wasn't long after that Mum passed away, yeah. Well, you were absolutely delighted when an apprenticeship became available at the tiny township of Geary, 28 kilometres from Dubbo, with the remarkable Betty Lane, who's in retirement but still going strong. What are your earliest memories of Betty and the well, man uh, destined to become her husband, the late Tiger Holland? Oh, Tiger was a real character. They called him all. He made sure he was the mayor of Geary. He was actually still riding. And occasionally you'd appreciate this that he'd go up and, and broadcast a race <laughs> halfway through the program and then go back and ride the rest of the pro, you know, it yeah. might be free in a, a six-race a, a six program. And then he also uh, done the race announcing at, at, at the picnics. But mm. Tiger was a great tutor and a great mentor. He knew all the tricks um, in race riding, which he could show me in um, – in, in track work too, and don't forget, in them days, we only had film down the straight. We never mm. had all what went on around the back. <laughs> no, that's true. Now, what about Betty Lane's determination, which has become legend? She was like a dog with an old boot; she wouldn't let go until eventually the Australian Jockey Club granted her a license. She was the first female to be given a trainer's license by the AJC. And the first female number one. But what people forget, Betty was a, a rope for that magazine, Hoofs and Horns. But the thing is that what they didn't realise when they took the challenge on with Betty to give her a licence, that she's very, very, very well educated. Mm. 
Hmm. At the moment, she's right. She's 97 or something, and she's right. She's just wrote a book. Hmm. But Betty was very, very educated. And, and to, to take uh, people on like the AJC and things like in them days or even these days, you've got to be educated or you've got to employ someone to do it for you, which I, I have to do. Hmm. But she was very educated, very, very determined, and she finished up with a number one trainer's likings and Smokey Jack run second, Earl Dippman, in a golden slipper, and mm. she trained numerous winners. Mm. And had a lot of nice horses too. Nixon was another one. Yeah, she has a great horse. And Tiger was there all the way through till he passed away, And uh, but he they were, they were a great team. You know, Tiger was the jockey, Betty was the trainer, mm. and uh, – and Patrick Webster was the apprentice. <laughs> and what an apprentice. Well, your first winner was a horse called Valley Royal, trained by Betty around the little Gulgong track where a running rail existed only in the home straight. I think the rest of the track was marked out with flags. Now, Pat, yeah, right. were they still using the open strand barrier in those days? Yeah, they were tappy, and I, I put it in that in that autobiography that mm. when we got when we before we went around the barriers, he's still alive. About Katie Nestor's granddad, Johnny Nestor, was sitting in the jockey's room, and he undone a, a hanky around his neck. He said, "See this son?" I said, "What?" And he had this scar around his neck. I said, oh, I had that happen. He said, "I jumped too quick in the strand barrier one day and got tangled up in it." And the strand barrier was actually a piece of wire. It wasn't rope or anything. It was wire. Mm. I thought to myself, I said, well, that won't be happening to me. So when we got around there, we went the strand barrier, and they said, go, I, I did deliberately miss it a little bit. Mm. Uh, I thought, there's no way I'm going to go up in that. Mm. And um, so I probably come out half a length behind about uh, – yeah, anyway, she uh, had, a, had a bit of a dream run along the fence, led. Mm. Yeah, she sort, of, she sort of had a lot on them, and that's the way they planned it. Yeah, of course. When it became obvious that you had your share of talent, Betty was happy to transfer your papers to a highly respected trainer at Randwick, the laconic, quietly spoken and very astute Bernie Burns, who trained out of that magnificent big stable which survived the sale of historic Newmarket a few years ago and is safely heritage listed, thank goodness. Now, you lived in the loft, beautiful old building, and you, uh, you camped in the loft up the top. I think you went up by stairs, but you came down on a slippery pole, didn't you, like a fireman? Yeah, yeah, well, it's, yeah, yeah, because they were stables in World War II, I, I, and that, that's where they kept the prisoners and everything. So, look, mm. there's a lot of history that stables. I, I, I still go back, and Chrissy uh, got permission off BW and uh, John Inglis to ship the horses out, and I had a surprise 40 up there. It was just amazing, and mm. I'm so glad that they uh, they kept it as a heritage thing because it's. Uh, mm. It's an amazing building, and, the, and I remember the boss used to say to me, "Go up and wind the, uh, set the clock." Just go this beautiful, huge eight-day eight clock. clock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I used to, I've, I've never won for heights, but anyway, I, I done it because it's what you were told to do. But 
Oh, it was an amazing part of my life uh, being apprenticed at uh, new, the Newmarket Stables. And he he used to come every morning to because uh, he was uh, our main owner, John Inglis. And what a gentleman he was. He was an amazing man. So a very, very fond memories of being at Newmarket. And uh, the thing is people can still go there and, and visit there and have a look what, uh, you know, the history of Newmarket's an amazing building. I think it went up in 1880, Pat. Anybody with the remotest interest in colonial history, Australian history, should make uh, arrangements to go and have a look at it. it. And didn't they build it correctly? It's, uh, it was built to last and so it has. Yeah, no, it's amazing. And the thing is, it's right right there at Ramwick. It's not as if you've got a, it's a, it's a drama to go, you know, to uh, you know, a long way to go for the people that are in the city. But, uh, yeah, there's a lot of history there and, uh, yeah, and I was part of it. When you got to Bernie Burns's Randwick stables, the big stable, his reliable old sprinter medieval maestro was in the twilight of his career. He'd been a prolific winner, but he was unsound by the time you got there and he didn't have long to go. But Bernie patched him up to give young Pat Webster his first city win. He was a bomb-proof horse, Pat. He must have been a dream to ride, was he? Oh, he was uh, – and I got the strapping too. He was just oh. – it, it, even all my years of uh, since then of uh, being with horses and training him, very rare. I haven't come, a ho- come across a horse with his nature that was uh, any good. Like he run third in the Doom and Ten. He, like, I think Medieval Maestro were like won 14 or 15 races in the city. Mm. And uh, he was getting on in years when I rode him, but oh, he was a beautiful old horse. He's by Pan too. Mm. Uh, and uh, it was my first ride at Randwick too, and the character mistakes, and I and he. There was a lot, a lot of money for a horse called Somebody W Burnett, free mm. roll that they had a stack of money on, and uh, Medi beat him by a head. And I think Oreo run third, George Moore, and there might have been a horse called Farmworth run mm. four with Des Lake. Mm. Oh, smart field. That's the class he was in. And as you said, he was by Pan 2, a French stallion. He was out of a mare called Barim. And, Paddy had a full sister uh, down the track, Barim's image. I think Tommy Hill might have trained her, though. Yeah, she did. And he was owned by a lovely man. They used to call him the fruit fly, Joe Rosso. Yeah, the fruit fly. <laughs> <laughs> because he, had, he was in the markets and he had, he had the fruit and that. So, yeah, he's yeah. a lovely Joe Rosso. Every second character in Sydney racing back then had a nickname. You don't hear it anymore. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, there was some funny nicknames, wasn't there? But anyway, yeah, he's was a fruit fly. <laughs> Around this time, your old boss, Betty Lane, brought a horse called London Rep to Canterbury one day for a midweek meeting and she chased you up to ride him. And this was a memorable result. Yeah, he was. Uh, I was going pretty good at the time, and uh, I was, yeah, I was excited to have a ride for Betty. And I remember when I'd been apprenticed to her, this horse had been up there, and he he was a bit of a buck jumper. And then I remember he threw Tiger's brother. He was training, but just been off the scene a bit lately. Um, 
he was trying to uh, why on the reverend hole they call him the reverend but mm. uh and then he come down he won but he i didn't know that how well he was going and he'd been really well back that day too like mm. this her and tiger would pull off a bit of a plunge with the owner now another early winner from the bernie burns stable was star rise who was raced by a branch of the antico family the branch that loved to punt. Now, Pat, you won a pretty decent race on him. Yeah, won the Canterbury Stakes, and, uh, and I think it was a non-claiming race too, but that mm. didn't worry Bernie. And uh, funny thing, the horse broke down in the race. He'd done his knee, and uh, mm. he, he was drifted out in the straight, and I used to use the stick in the right hand, and uh, I, I, I couldn't even give him a tap with it because he kept drifting out, and I had trouble holding him on the track, but he still won. Mm. And their colours were apricot with a black sash, black hoop sleeves, uh, they were big punters, uh, and they were also involved in the in the uh, markets. And uh, yeah, they didn't mind throwing it on. Mm. We mentioned John Inglis earlier. He always had a horse or two in work with Bernie Burns, and a couple of very handy ones that carried the pale blue and dark blue diamonds red cap were Union Jack and Murky Knight, and you got to win on both of them. Yeah, yeah, I've won. Uh, two or three straight on Murky Night in town and then Union Jack too, both by uh, London Cry, same mm. as what uh, London Rep was by, but uh, mm. by Blake Gibson stood the London Cry at Narromine at, at a stud there. And, uh, Compton yeah, stud. Always had horses with Bernie and I, mm. uh, and uh, and uh, it was an absolute pleasure to ride for Mr Inglis in them colours and uh, to win races for him. I, it was just that little bit extra because he used to come in the stables every morning, you know. Mm. Well, there's uh, a few was, more names, Pat. Uh, popular choice, Pulse Rate, Flagrante. You won on all three of them in town. And you actually had a ride in Vane's Golden Slipper. Well, I may as well not had a ride in it because I, I rode a little horse called Bay Babylon who won a one very easy go a couple of races going in as a slipper and the silly me thought you know he was some sort of hope the great gentleman of racing ex-fighter pilot frank lewis mm. who, who's still going now and well into his late 90s trained the horse and he always give apprentices a go but uh, all the hype them days was that Vane had won in Melbourne and he was coming up here, but we had a filly here called Special Girl mm. trained by Neville Begg that the great George Moore was riding and there was sort of a competition, you know, got the competition was going to be could she beat Vane or could Vane beat her. Mm. But I have to tell you one thing, John Tapp, Vane, as with Vane was no slouch out of the barrier, Mm. But as he hit the ground, Vane was going around the first term with pee hole and feet in his mouth. Oh, dear me. And he, he, then we later found out as life went on that how good a horse Vane was, you know. But, uh, and then, uh, I had an injury and, um, I wouldn't have won on the one him, but Roy Higgins replaced me on Babe Along in the size produce. Mm hmm. We'd had a lot of rain, stack of rain, and Frank kept working Bay of Avalon where uh, Milan, you know, Vane's trainer just trotting candy around the middle, and uh, that's what beat him that day was fitness, nothing else, and on heavy track. Yeah, stepping up to seven furlongs for the first time, and uh, he just paddled in the last 50 metres, and Bo Babylon uh, wore him down and beat him. But uh, Vane proved later... Uh, you know, what he was made of. He just went on to amazing things and did equally as well at stud. 
Yeah, well, Bay Babylon wasn't going to paddle with Roy Higgins on him, I assure you of that. So, yeah. <laughs> now, Pat, you were really starting to make a name for yourself when Lady Luck deserted you. You were riding a horse called Yarrandale, who'd come from the bush with a really good record. He was in the last race one day at Rose Hill. You're still not sure what happened, but you woke up in hospital with a long list of injuries. Well, I'd had three or four good rides that day and I, I was on a roll. I hadn't rode a winner and Yarrandale was in the last. But, you know, look, Tappy, I can tell you what happened. In them days, you're on, you took medication to keep your weight down, different tablets to keep your weight down. And um, I, was, I was taking the tablet to keep my weight down. And uh, I'm sure that my reflexes, the more I think about it, I even think about it sometimes, I'll be laying there and think about it today, how how not unlucky, but how lucky I was to come out of it with my life. But mm. I, I'm sure that – and that's what we do now. We, You know, the reason for testing and that with jockeys and apprentices, that they can't take them drugs now. But I'm sure that that's what happened. My reflexes weren't there. I was in a bit of a daze and, and as the day went on, and I'm sure that's why I had the fall because it was my own doing, and uh, I was just lucky to get out of life. Simple as that. Mm. Now, Pat, what was the list of injuries? It was very imposing. I'd had a broken leg, uh, fractured skull, cracked collarbone, ribs, pelvis, and the worst thing turned out was a compound fracture on my right leg, which when they I went to Parramatta Hospital, it was set wrong because hospitals were that busy in them days and, uh, and I, you know, that was set wrong. But I finished where I trained to ride a horse called Lazy Pat for a, for a Dr. Woolridge at, uh, who was the owner of Doug Longstale and he, he, he got me transferred to, uh, when I was able to be transferred to, uh, to George Hospital or Southern Hospital and they, patched me together there. I was there for quite a while and they patched me together there. So, mm. yeah, the worst of the injuries was the, the compound fracture. Mm. As I mentioned in the introduction, you did try a quick little comeback in your hometown of Inverell, uh, but that was very short-lived. And as much as it hurt, you made the decision to quit the saddle. Now, you tried to get racing out of your system by walking away from it and you spent six years on the waterfront. Tell me about that giant floating crane you operated in those days. Well, my dad thought I'd had it a bit easy, and by that time he was, uh, he was one of the, uh, one of the uh, uh, super viable. He was, you know, he was on the waterfront, and he was one of the guys in charge of Cockatoo Island, so he said, oh, you know, you to get another trade, become a rigger. So I went and done my riggers course and um, got got my ticket and I became a rigger at, at Cockatoo. And when you become mm. a rigger at Cockatoo Island, it was, a, it was the biggest floating crane in the southern hemisphere called the Titan. Mm. And, and we'd leave Cockatoo, the tugs of towers, to all different parts of the harbour because the Titan could uh, then – get to lift things that other than normal cranes couldn't. So, mm. gee, it was hard work, but it was quite an experience. Um, uh, and they were a good bunch of guys. They were hard. Well, all painters and dockers. You had to become a paint To become a rigger on the wharf, you had to join the painters and dockers union. So mm. uh, you can imagine some of the, the villains that you come across in life and working on the docks. But I'll tell you what, uh, that's where men were men. And uh, you'd, 
you know, I think if you got in an argument, you're better off having one of those back you up than someone else. But it was a great <laughs> experience working on the Titan. One night, you and your wife, Chrissy, were having a quiet little drink at the Rusty Shovel, which was the popular name for the Kensington RSL. Now, you'd been working a lot of double shifts at the time and you thought you were paying way too much tax. So you were telling her about it. Yeah, we're sitting there and I was, I, we'd met there after work and I was telling her how much I showed her. You just get your, your, your pay in a little brown and a little envelope. And I said, look, you know, I paid so much tax. She said, oh, well, what do you want to do about it? I said, well, I just waste time working any more doublers. I'm paying too much tax. And then we started talking about training horses. She said, well, you know, why don't you take out a horse trainer's licence? She said, because trainers don't have to pay much tax because it's too hard a game and, and <laughs> you you won't have to worry about it. And she was pretty right. But uh, So that's where it all started from. And uh yeah, so it was an amazing uh, – it was also called God's Waiting Place, the rusty shovel tapping. Yeah, yeah, I remember it, yeah. All the racing fraternity went there after a race meeting or, or, you know, that's the rusty shovel was where everyone hung out, yeah. It's gone, Pat, hasn't it? Yeah, no, it's a set of units now, like most Goodness things are, like yeah. where, Betty, where we had our stables in Doncaster Avenue, that's a set of units too now, where mm. I first started off at Cafe Munro Stables in Doncaster Avenue, their units there now too. Mm, I have, yep. Chrissy's from a very strong racing background. In fact, at the time you and she got together, she had three brothers who were all jockeys and all riding winners. Yeah, especially... Um, uh, David was a little bit behind the other two in, in Jimmy and Greg, but they were apprenticed to the great Seth Rolls, the gentleman of racing. And then, but they, TJ Smith really took a liking to Jimmy and Greg, and he took them under the, his wing. And they rode uh, a terrible lot of winners for TJ. He loved them because these couple of little cheeky half Chinese lads running around <laughs> showed the greatest respect. But TJ loved them. He put them on some some good horses. They rode a lot of winners for TJ. Yeah, great blokes, all three from a wonderful family, and it's always good to run into them. They very special people. Uh, very lucky. Um, uh, not only did I get a wife, I actually got a family. Um, couldn't be closer to like we're like brothers. Couldn't be closer to anyone, especially with Jimmy and Greg, and especially Jimmy. Like I had him by my side the other day at Randwick. Uh, not only were we mates and brother-in-laws, we're soulmates, and we. Uh, yeah. We care about each other dearly. He's a lovely, lovely person. He didn't deserve what's happened to him, but we're moving forward now and hopefully uh, we can keep moving forward. Very, very special family. Dad's, uh, Chrissy's dad's still alive. He's 87 and give him, he's on the phone this morning, still giving plenty of cheeks. So uh, <laughs> uh, it's been an amazing uh, journey with her, with her family. Now, Patrick, stand by there. We'll clear a commitment on the podcast. Back with Pat Webster after this. You only need to talk to country-based owners and trainers to realise that the Tab Highway concept has been a runaway winner for racing New South Wales. The scheme met with some opposition when introduced in 2015, but it wasn't long before the Tab Highways captured the imagination of regional horsemen. Early days, trainers like Matt Dunn, Matt Dale, Danny Williams and Terry Robinson dominated the weekly highways, but now there seems to be a different winning trainer every week. For bush owners, 
the prize money has been a revelation, while punters love the highways as a betting medium. From a media viewpoint, the highways seem to throw up a good story most weeks. The Tab Highways are a key component of the new face of New South Wales racing. Now let me throw a few names at you, nice horses you've trained over the years. What about that big long-legged grey, Abinicio? You won 13 races with him, including four at stakes level. One of them was the TJ Smith, but it was a lousy Group 3 in those days. Yeah, it was still, you know, it was great prize money, but it was, it's, I think uh, first was 236000 The thing about it was a Group 3, but it had... Mm. Group one prize money and uh, and uh, he, oh he was a great horse he was a, well he broke a twenty five year old track record at Ramwick um, and he still would have held it but they did re camber the track otherwise and then naturally that shifted the goalpost but as far as I'm concerned he he still would have held it because uh, when he broke it at reason it stood for twenty five years because it was a hard twelve hundred but like I said they re cambered the track and. Uh, other horses have broke it since, but I think he still holds the one at Hawkesbury over a thousand. Mm. That's the first time I put blinkers on him. Kevin Moser rode him, he said, Geez, take those blinkers mm. off, mate. He, said, he went that quick. He said, I wasn't over the steering or stop him. So yeah. we did take him after that. Yeah, he's a great, great sprinter. I've never forgotten Montana Sands, Pat. He was a tiny little horse, he was a pony. He never won a stakes race but he won a number of races in the city and I know you thought the world of him. Well, he's such a good little horse. He, uh, he, he He's only 15-1 in brand-new shoes and he's carrying – he's batting above his average, but he's, oh, he was a great horse. And, mm. uh, yeah, a lot of stories from Montana Sands, but he was lot, placed a lot in listed group races, but uh, he, he, he won – I think he won a couple of listed races, but he was just uh, – he, like he won a lot of races and he was a real little earner, but – Owned by the Towers of the GT Spelling Farm fame, but uh, yeah, great little horse, Montana Sands. Shy Hero looked like being very good at one stage. You won half a dozen races with him quickly, including a Group Three, and he went off the boil, didn't he? Yeah, well, I think he well, it was it was a Group Two then. That goes to show you that mm. the the it was the TJ. So it went from a Group Three to a Group Two, and now it's a Group One. But he mm. won it the year after Abinicio won it, and Abinicio actually bled in. He started favourite in that one, and he actually bled. But mm. uh, a little larrikin jockey who was a prince, we couldn't get anyone, and he rode him. A, a jockey call is riding in Queensland now is Jackson Morris. He was a prince, mm. and he won. Won the TJ on him, yes. You were paid a great honour when asked to take over the training of At Sea when Theo Green retired. And this was around the time, Pat, that the AJC had banned the use of anabolic steroids in horses. And many old geldings who'd been on them all their lives reacted badly. And At Sea was one of them. Well, first of all, you know, I was very close to Theo and, and I still, whenever I hit a little hurdle, I think what Theo Green would do. I, he still comes into my life regularly uh, in my thoughts week, especially with the apprentices and that because he, he's just a great man, a great citizen. He had his principles and he was a great man. For him to give out C to me was an honour, but I, I just took it for a while. Well, I can keep going here as a seven-year-old and then, 
he was out spelling and when he was due to come back, I picked up the paper and seen that all base steroids had been banned and I went, oh, my God. And I rang my vet, John Peephill, at the time and I said, what's going to happen here? He said, oh, mate, you're in a heap of trouble here now because um, as Kenny Stone's also very close to me and Kenny said that at sea used to get a um, uh, oil-based needle every fortnight on, on the dot. And he'd been getting them for like five years, every fortnight for five years. So when we got him, he, he, we had a feeder on the door and all the corns falling out, as he, out of his mouth as he's eating and he lost all his back mould as his teeth fell out and he developed, developed huge splints on the inside of both his shins and we had so much trouble with corns of his feet because later on as I deal with people with drugs, and withdrawal symptoms, he he had to go cold turkey mm. at sea. And he'd been on them for five years and getting a shot every fortnight for five years. So he had terrible withdrawal symptoms. And, uh, oh, God, it made it hard. But mm. anyway, well, it turned you, out. You did a great job with him under the circumstances. He gave you your first group win. And this race, Pat, seems to keep coming back to you, doesn't it? The Canterbury Stakes. It was then well, a group was, two. Yeah, well, it was a group two then, and it was my first group win. And I was, it was just amazing to to win it. And uh, hadn't been Darren rode him, and Darren and that Sue were like um, peaches and cream. They just went together, and he hadn't rode him that day. Mm. He wouldn't have won, but um, he, you had to use all your vigour on on that Sue. And Darren was a very vigorous jockey when he wanted to be. Mm. So that's a special place in my heart that day that he won. I still remember going out and having a cold beer with Glenn Robbins of the um, Bet Busters and Racenet fame. He was a journo at the time, the son of Keith Robbins. We just sat under a stand and uh, had a cold beer. It was just an amazing day for me. So, And Theo was very happy for us. And after the horse had to be taken off the steroids for him to do that, I never thought we'd do it, but uh, actually done it and Darren done it and uh, I done it with him. So it was yeah. a great, great story. A horse with the unusual name of Thank God You're Here provided you with pleasant memories and great frustration. Eight wins, eight placings, $540,000. He won a Hawkesbury Cup. He won a Bill Ritchie. He ran second in a Galaxy he ran fifth in a Stradbroke, not very far from the winner. He had enormous ability, but he, you told me once he was the most fragile horse you've ever trained. Yeah, but you can fit in with that then. We had the pool and everything. But how the story to thank God you hear, Matty Dale was working for John O'Shea. He, he'd gone to John O'Shea to um, just to pick up you know, uh, like on a work experience to learn things and that. And then he decided to have time off. And uh, Michael Thomas, who owned, thank God you're here, mm. said to Matty, who would you give a horse to at Ramming? And he paid me the compliment of saying, you know, giving the Pat Webster. So that's how, thank God you're here, come along. He was very, very uh, fragile horse, but, oh, my word. Rod Quinn said, you know, he's probably one of the best horses he ever rode, and he rode Long Row and Octane. He rode some great horses, but you'd be surprised if ever you do one with Rod Quinn where he actually holds, thank God you're here. And then mm. he was a very, very good horse, and he started favouring Epsom, but he hit his head in the barrier. Mm. Um, but uh, very, very good horse, and he led to me getting 
the other horse, which was Happy Clapper. And that leads me into our special tribute to your once-in-a-lifetime horse. His Villiers win in 2015 was good. His Epsom win in 2017 was special. His Canterbury Stakes win was great. But they paled into insignificance alongside his win in the 2018 Doncaster. For a bloke who'd spent most of his racing life at Randwick, this was your supreme moment. Uh He'd run second to Winks after the Billies where we didn't know how good Winks was and she got in with 56 or something, 56 and a half. But then again, we got in with 51 or something. So mm-hmm. that was that that was amazing for him to run second. And he had to, the Villies, wasn't a long gap between the Villies and the Doncaster, so it was a good run. And then the following year, he, 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 he got a... a Wet track, which didn't suit him, and he ran second to John O'Shea's horse. It had had an easy lead. It's somewhat. And it's somewhat. I just mm. never thought that it happened again, Tappy, because he was going up in weights, and and um, I just thought, we well, that's the end of that. And had I had had you know, I just the Doncaster, amazing race. It's a race I always wanted to win. I didn't want to win a Melbourne Cup. I didn't want to win a Golden Slipper, and I just didn't think it'd come. And then the day that it did come. I must say, I went to the races thinking he'd run well, but I thought our song had ended. And then when he hit the front at the 200, my heart nearly come through my chest. I know. Well, onlookers w- were worried about you, apparently. You was red as a <laughs> tomato and, <laughs> and completely out of control. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just I was red all right. <laughs> I looked like uh, <laughs> I was red as a tomato, as my granddaughter says, a beetroot. But no, it was just I was I was just absolutely to to actually get something that you've always wanted. It's just amazing. It's uh, you know, it's just an amazing feeling. I honestly thought my heart was going to come through my chest. So yeah. for uh, Clapper to do that, and then uh, like you said, he'd won the Epson, and then. The Canterbury Stakes, which was my first group, when it became a Group One, well, that was okay coming through. But the Epsom was my first Group One, and I trained out in the middle of Ramwick, and I was only one of three trainers there that never had a Group One. And to be in that hut at Ramwick, you you're expected to have one or get one. So I only had a small string, so I could walk around with my uh, chest out and uh, got the monkey off my back. It was a wonderful ride for you and for owner Michael Thomas. And speaking of owners, I know you'll want to acknowledge the loyalty of Jerry Harvey, who sent you horses for 40 years. In the last few years, Pat, you really had more than five or six in work. And at one stage, not that long ago, you tell me he owned every horse in your stable. The first time you met Jerry Harvey... I think you and he disagreed on something. Yeah, look, but first of all, I, 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 I uh, shout out to Michael Thomas who owned uh, Happy Clapper and I have to say, Tappy, what a great owner he was. Um, if it would have been a syndicate, I call them pub trainers that get to the pub on the Friday night, want to tell the trainer what to do. But mm. I was so lucky to have an owner in Michael Thomas that he, he, he stuck to me all the way through. Uh, I take my hat and thank him very much for for that, uh, Michael Thomas. And Jerry Harvey, I was just having a day at a, 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 a stud day called Castle Ray Stud and 
I knew Singo and he introduced me to Jerry and we had words because Jerry uh, was a lot younger then, so was I, and he said something. I said something back to him and he rang me about a fortnight later. He said, I'm going to take your horse. He said, no one's ever spoke to me like that. He said, at least you spoke your mind. I want you to train a horse. And that's where our association started. He's with me all the way through. As he tells me, he puts my sons through, my children through school, <laughs> my grandchildren through school. And when I spoke to him and told him I was retiring, I said, I don't want you putting my great-grandchildren through school. <laughs> He's never let you forget. No, but, yeah, look, he's uh, he's not a man that you can say, you can't say to him, oh, you done this and you done that for me. He doesn't want to hear that. He doesn't want you saying, oh, yeah, you're a good bloke and all that. He doesn't want that. He, it's whether it embarrasses him or not, not he doesn't want to hear that. He, he just must, be, you know, see you get on. He loves seeing young people get on. He was so glad when Wayne went in the partnership with me and Jack, we're so glad that when Jack went and seen him and went because uh, we had Jack since the day he was born, went to boarding school. He, he's just a great man and uh, uh, a great man with a lot of money. Yeah, exactly. A year ago, you released your biography with a great name, Don't Die Wondering, published by New Holland, a foreword by Jerry Harvey, and I hope Dimmicks have a branch at the Pearly Gates, Pat, because I, I'd like to think people like your mum and dad and Tiger Holland and Bernie Burns and John Inglis can get hold of a copy. Uh, it was a great compliment. It just came out of the blue, Tappy, that this guy, Alan Whitaker, rang me and he said, oh, we, we're uh, talking to an author and they said, we're sick of doing footballers. Can you get someone else that's... Uh, uh, you know, in, in sport, and then Happy Clapper was going the way he was then. And Alan Whitaker, the author, his father's in his 80s and he just loves racing. So apparently it was a no-brainer and it was a great compliment. And the, the biggest compliment of all is the book sold completely out and they couldn't rerun it because of the COVID-19 uh, because it was printed in China. But uh, Alan Whitaker rang me recently and said, through uh, back orders and people ringing up for it, especially coming into Christmas, they're doing a rerun and it's coming out again in February. And and don't forget, all all, all profits from my side go to the charity. So it's a, it's been a, a great thing. It's a great compliment, and uh, no doubt the person we haven't mentioned after all this is sitting here looking at me and uh, is Christine. <laughs> Better than six Group One winners. Oh, better than 60 group one winners, Tappy. She reckons, <laughs> reckons I, I get a bit naughty every now and again, but she keeps a pretty close eye on me. And, uh, yeah. you know, you know yourself, every successful businessman, there's a good good woman behind them, and I've been lucky to have Chrissy. She's been a, an absolute pearler. Pat, you mentioned Alan J. Whitaker. Remiss of me not to mention Alan. He was the author of Don't Die Wondering, and he, he did a wonderful job, well-researched and uh, very faithfully done. I think Alan put on about 10 kilos doing the book because um, he, he, he used to come up the farm and we sit down here and, and, and talk and, uh, uh, you know, like I said, I hadn't been for Chrissy. I could remember a lot of the things, but every time Alan come up, Chrissy cooked a beautiful lunch for him. <laughs> <laughs> and he's not a bad doer, Alan Whitaker, and uh, 
I think he made a couple of visits when he didn't have to because uh, I think he he got a liking to Chrissy's cooking as I have. So, uh, but uh, he often brings it up that he might want to write another book just just to come up and get one of <laughs> important meals. Now, Pat, you're the first to admit that racing has been very good to you, but by golly, you've put back in, you've returned tenfold, and you'll continue to do so for a long time to come. It's great to know you're not lost to racing and you'll be doing some important work on the fringes. Thanks for joining us on the podcast and I am very privileged uh, to record, as you said, uh, what could be your final interview. I doubt that. No, Johnny Tap, you and me go back a, a long time. You are a legend, my friend, and for you to do this podcast today... It will be. There won't. There's no reason to do any more interviews, and it's just amazing that the years that we go back, and the legend that you are, and the family man that you are, uh, the boots on the other foot. So thank you very much. Good on you, Pat. Lovely to talk on a podcast produced by Supernova Sound. 